Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Well, hello. Happy April. Finally, my birthday month. I know, the big 5-0. I'm thinking about presents for you. Well, it's funny you should say that because I wanted to talk about something. Oh God, normally when you say that, that means I've done something wrong. No. I failed to respond to a text. I ghosted you. I didn't invite you to lunch with George Ezra. It's a long list. Yeah. So something people might have heard us talk about ad infinitum on the podcast is some years ago, Ed Ed bought me as a gift, a vegan cheese making kit. And I, I I failed to use it. Yeah, yeah. Now, to be fair to me, I think it, from memory, it was quite close to the expiry date. It wasn't close to the expiry date. What you mean when I bought it for you? That's just complete. That's too. I mean, that's even worse. You're just like adding insult to injury here. <laughs> you failed to use my present, and then you allege that it was close. That I got bought somewhat sort of, you know, off the back of a lorry, a vegan cheese, a vegan cheese making kit. I mean, you know, that is just outrageous. No, listen, I have felt bad about this. And yeah. um, and, and this Christmas, you got me a, a lovely gift. And what I could tell is you had spent a lot of time combing the internet for gifts and then probably pounding the shopping streets of London. And you'd obviously have taken a lot of time. And then as so, so often is the case, the answer was right under your nose because it turned out my Christmas gift was from the in-house shop where you work in Parliament. Yes. Now, a lot of people would think, oh, that's somebody panic buying from a place underneath where they work. But I, I, I know you're not that person. This is quite an extraordinary tirade. I think I like get it all out there. I mean, honestly, I I think your therapist has probably been saying to you, you know, it's important you kind of make your feelings known to Ed rather than bottling them up. So I'm really admiring of that. Uh, I'm so pleased you admire me because it was a it's a beautiful memory of us exchanging gifts at Christmas and um, you leaving. I left you leaving your Christmas lunch early, and then the six pound card that I bought you just being left on the table. I did. Didn't leave the lunch early. That's a, that's untrue. Anyway, let's carry on. What's the point here, comrade? Anyway, so you you bought me some beautiful socks with the uh, with the portcullis yeah. logo on them, and then a lovely mug that said "Leader of the House." Yeah, yeah. And I, I'm going to be honest with you. I hadn't used the mug. It had gone to the back of the cupboard. And then right. yesterday I was feeling guilty about this. I was thinking about the vegan cheese kit. Yeah. So I thought I'm going to have a, a, a cup of tea in that lovely mug that Ed got me for Christmas. 
I poured the hot water in. It it started leaking. It had hairline cracks in it. You are joking. No, I scalded myself. Are you serious? Yes. I'll take it back. Uh, I might have to rummage around in the bin first. That's terrible. Some people, when they were given a present with lots of goodwill and love <laughs> attached to it, would have not then raised the fact that it was turned out to be substandard. I, I admire your, again, I admire your honesty <laughs> in, in having sort of come out and, you know, that we feel sufficiently comfortable, known and seen by each other. It speaks well to the candour in our relationship. The the, the candour in our relationship, courageous conversations. You can just say this to me. You know I'm not going to be offended. You know I'm not a sensitive person. Let me just say, if we were Americans, there'd probably be some litigation at this point. What, are you litigating against (laughs) me? (laughs) I mean, that might be true. (laughs) I'm not sure where I'm going to... Honestly, I'm not. I, I'm slightly lost for words. I'm not sure where I'm going to take this. I mean, <laughs> I, I think I might buy you a book token for your, for your 50th birthday because I think it's just like the safest thing. Yeah. So should we talk about what we're talking about this week? Yes, we have recorded a conversation. It's a great conversation with two experts in the world of anti-corruption. Oliver Bullo is a hugely respected journalist in this field. His book, Butler to the World, How Britain Became the Servant of Tycoons, Tax Dodgers, Kleptocrats and Criminals, uh, was, was actually the inspiration for this episode. It's a fantastic book. And we also found out that he leads kleptocrat tours around London. So if you don't fancy a Sherlock Holmes tour or a Jack the Ripper tour, Beatles tour, you can do a kleptocrat tour with Oliver. Or you could do a tour of my failed birthday <laughs> presents. <laughs> Joining him, Labour MP Margaret Hodge, and she's been working on issues around anti-corruption and responsible tax for years. She has, and she's played a really good role on that. And dirty money, tax dodging and economic crime is a problem on a massive scale. And that definitely comes across in this conversation. But we also talk a lot about why it doesn't have to be this way and some of the solutions at our disposal to change it. What's your reason to be cheerful, Jeff? Cherry blossoms, Ed. I just love this time of year. I can feel slightly melancholy when they start to go. And then I think, well, I wonder how many more cherry blossoms I'll see before my time is up. But oh, but dear. at the moment, we're in the early stages and it's just beautiful. Do you know what I'd love to do one time is go to Japan. Our producer, Emma, went one year and, and saw the cherry blossoms over there, which is supposed to be something nice. But, wow. um, you know, as I grow older, I appreciate the seasons. I appreciate the cycle of things. I mean, I just love the fact that it's getting dark now at sort of, what, half past seven, quarter to eight yeah. in the evening. Yeah. I mean, it just lifts my mood so much. I can tell. Even when you try and drag me down with your <laughs> views on my present buying. Now. Your reason to be cheerful? Yes. So this is quite on theme. I decided at the weekend to take up a listener suggestion to get on my bike, uh, go to Shoreditch and go to Le Fomagerie. Aha, just off Brick Lane, the hipster artisanal vegan cheesemonger. The vegan cheese shop. Yeah. And I must say, you know, just a bit of overall context, I found myself a little bit of a fish out of water, I would say, in all the sort of trendy clothes shops. I I kind of ended up in a trendy clothes shop, sort of accidentally. (laughs) And I thought, oh, I'm about 30 years too old for this trendy clothes shop. And even when I'm 30 years ago, I would have been a fish out of water in this trendy clothes shop. Do you know what I mean? There's like suddenly you hit all these um, secondhand clothes shops and you do feel slightly uncool for school. You know what I mean? 
But I'm, I'm just wondering, I see some of these people around East London. I, I wonder if some of the clothes that you specifically might have been wearing as a teenager, some kind of nerd chic normcore thing, yeah. isn't actually the stuff they're selling in those shops. Or even now. I think what you're wearing now, probably you've got to give it another 20 or 30 years. Uh, maybe that's true. Anyway, but I did end up at Le Fomagerie as well. Uh, I felt very proud of myself. Um, and... And I bought some cheese, vegan cheese, and it was very nice. It was too. So what did you get then? Because I'm, I'm really intrigued by this. Mm, I can't really name them. One was orange, one was sort of brown, and one was another colour. But they have bluish cheeses. Um, there's lots of cashew base base in it. I mean, they're, they're really nice. And when you, when you eat these high-end vegan cheeses, is the way to be thinking about them is that they're replicating non-vegan cheese or are they their own thing is that the way to approach it well i don't really know the answer to this and i there was a one like sting in the tail which is that i made the mistake of saying to the very nice lady who i was buying the cheese from just as i was paying i said by the way i said are these more healthy than non-vegan cheeses just you know from a sort of overall health point of view leaving aside the sort of dairy question and she said oh no they're just as high in saturated fat Oh, well, that's good to know. I'm always suspicious of anything too healthy. But I made a toasty, I made a half cheese toasty and a half vegan cheese toasty. Oh, so you, you did an A-B comparison. Yeah, and I would say it was complete, it was very competitive, the vegan cheese. Well, this is good to know. And um, I think it's proof to our listeners that if they, they make a suggestion, you're there ready to get on your bike. Totally. And I had an interesting discussion with them about the vegan uh, cheese making kit and they said the one i bought was excellent and they just, could, they just couldn't believe that this so-called friend of mine had thrown it back in my face oh like hang on that. hang on say oh sorry I'm, I'm just really sore from where the 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 water from that defective mug you bought me scalded <laughs> me i might just have to go and put some cream on it sorry can we end this conversation here you're listening to reasons to be cheerful with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd so I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Oliver Below, who is a journalist and author of Butler to the World and Moneyland, two really interesting and important books, uh, and Dame Margaret Hodge, who is a Labour MP for Barking and chair of the all-party parliamentary group on anti-corruption and responsible tax. Thank you both for joining us. It's wonderful to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Let's start with this, Oliver, which is your book is called Butler to the World. And just to sort of locate our listeners in this conversation, what does that mean? And how did Britain get into the business of butlering? So I, I mean, I'm a Russianist by training and inclination. I lived in Moscow for many years. And I sort of stumbled into writing about corruption and financial crime because, you know, there's quite a lot of it over there. And it's quite hard to ignore. And one thing I started noticing quite quickly was that whatever the scam, whoever the oligarch, you know, whatever the sum of money involved, there was invariably a British connection. It might be a lawyer, it might be a shell company, it might be a bank account, it might be property, it might be a football club, it might be, you name it, uh, a political party. Someone British was always involved. And I became increasingly alarmed by this, but also increasingly interested about how this had happened. Why was Britain always, you know, at the nexus of the movement of dirty money out of the former Soviet Union? And in fact, not only out of the former Soviet Union, out of you know, most of the world, to be honest. And so the phrase butler to the world is, is my attempt to sort of sum that up in a phrase, the idea that, you know, Britain is a kind of 
geopolitical jeeves, you know, selling its services to the highest bidder, you know, helping the kind of Bertie Worcesters of uh, the world to get away with whatever crimes they are, except in this case, obviously, it's not nicking a policeman's helmet, it's looting a country. And this is, it's a post-imperial story, really. This is a a role that the City of London stumbled into back in the 1950s when it was looking for a, for a job after the colonies became independent. And, you know, it became incredibly profitable. And it's been transformational for the UK, you know, this sort of creation of a giant offshore service sector in the UK and its associated tax havens. But it's also been transformational for a lot of the world because it's allowed the elites of countries like Nigeria, Russia, Ukraine, to steal as much as they want and spend it on real estate in West London rather than spend it on hospitals and schools and roads and so on. And say a little bit more, it's very well put in your book, but just so people kind of grasp, what are the sort of industries, if that's the right way of putting it in Britain, that are doing this butlering? Well, it's one of the things I found fun about doing the book. I mean, a lot of it I researched in lockdown was rereading all the Jeeves and Worcester books. Um, And actually Jeeves, you know, we have this idea of him as being like Stephen Fry, right? You know, this sort of cuddly national treasure. Jeeves is a real rogue. He's a baddie. He does some really nasty things. I mean, he he like coshes a police officer, he bribes police officers, he impersonates police officers. He'll do anything for a tip from Bertie Worcester or one of his rich friends. And that's kind of what we do as a country. Yes, it started off with just moving a bit of money uh, back in the 1950s for the Soviet Central Bank. Then it morphed into, you know, helping people dodge taxes, helping people, you know, buy property, helping people sue journalists that write about them, helping oligarchs sue other oligarchs, anything that will earn a fee, really. And the extent to which this is now normal is kind of extraordinary. Things that when you look at them, you know, in isolation, you think, how on earth did we get here? For example, Elliot Higgins, the founder of Bellingcat, an astonishingly brave journalist and investigator who said that Yevgeny Prigozhin, the mercenary king whose troops are currently destroying Bakhmut, was a mercenary king. This is entirely true. He was sued by Yevgeny Prigozhin as a result. Uh, He managed to find British lawyers prepared to act for him, solicitors and barristers. He managed to get permission from the Treasury to access his sanctioned money in order to bring that legal case. Um, By any stretch of the imagination, it's bonkers to take fees from a mercenary king for suing a British journalist for calling him a mercenary king. And yet it went ahead anyway. And so it began gradually, but it's become a completely amoral business, whereby British enablers, British professional classes are prepared to do almost anything to earn fees from wealthy oligarchs from overseas, totally regardless of the damage it does to those oligarchs' home countries, or to be honest, the damage it does here. And how unusual are we I mean, in the sort of top of the charts for butlering. Oh, we're, we're way, way, way ahead. Of any other country. There are lots of countries that can do bits of what we can do. You know, when it comes to managing wealth, the Swiss are good at that. When it comes to, you know, corporate, opaque corporate structures, you can get those in Dubai. But in terms of, you know, the soup to nuts approach of moving your money, hiding your money, investing your money, selling you fine art, educating your children, selling you property, giving you very favorable tax treatment, London is in a different league. And, you know, if we could, it's one of the reasons that that I wang on about this so much is that if we could just toughen up London a bit so less illegal money could come here, we would have an unimaginable effect on the global criminal economy because there just wouldn't be anywhere for this money to go. And actually, to put it in the other way, if we really want our financial services sector to to blossom and grow, they're never going to do it on the back of dirty money. Going back to this, one of the things that's so insidious, all the professionals 
engaged in this business, whether it's lawyers, whether it's accountants, whether it's the company service provider, whether it's the banks, they all have access, real access to government, either through the civil services or through the politicians. So every time you try and to introduce not more regulation, but just smart regulation to try and control and get rid and turn this big tanker of dirty money around, they resist and their access and influence at the heart of government is very, very difficult to overcome. Margaret, you've obviously now had great experience in working on these issues. Give us your perspective on that historical question. Really, I sort of put it with Margaret Thatcher's big bang when she was trying to stimulate the financial services sector and the economy. And then, of course, we had the Blair Brown years where you played an active role. And if you remember, they were absolutely determined to deregulate then. It was we, it was the Labour government. So that's why I said there isn't a political party to blame. We were all to blame. We, for example, introduced the golden visas regime, which allowed a lot of people to come in. And then I think our relationship with our tax havens was very important as well in making us a jurisdiction of choice for uh, dirty money. And I think all of that coming together led to not just the kleptocrats that Oliver has concentrated on, but all sorts of criminals use the UK very lax corporate structures and our financial services sector and our advisors. To bad intent, so it's drug smugglers, people smugglers who use us to take their money around the world and hide it. The most egregious example to, that has been brought to my attention of where our structures have been exploited relates actually to Lebanon. You'll remember the fire, the explosion in the warehouse of fertilizer that we were told was intended to go to Mozambique, killed over 200 people, injured over 1,000. Three months after it happened, I got a phone call from another brilliant um, investigative journalist who works for Reuters who said, you'll never guess, Margaret, it was a British-owned company that was involved. But because of our lax regulatory framework, it had been set up by somebody from Cyprus who acts as what is known as a company service provider. She put herself down as the beneficial owner of the company. She, of course, wasn't. And she had told HMRC that it was a dormant company, which it clearly wasn't because it was dealing in this fertilizer. Anyway, it then emerged over time that the real beneficial owners were three Ukrainian oligarchs. The fertilizer was not going anywhere near Mozambique. It was all going to Assad in Syria for him to use in barrel bombs against his own civilian population. And I give that as the most egregious of examples of where a lax corporate structure here in the UK can lead not just to people bringing dirty money into the UK or taking it elsewhere in the world, but it actually can lead to terrible, terrible incidents like that in Lebanon. And Oliver, I mean, what was the most shocking example of this that you came across when researching and writing the book? I was probably back in 2014 after they had their revolution in Ukraine, the, the Maidan revolution, what they call the revolution of dignity. And President Yanukovych had fled in a helicopter with a, you know everything he could carry um, and left behind these astonishing palaces, which, you know, we you could wander around. And I did because it was fascinating. It's a rubber neck in, in the rooms. It was an astonishing spectacle of kind of egregious overconsumption. He just had a, a pile of boxes in the garage with a Picasso in and a, and a sort of 15th century Bible. So things 
things that he now just had nowhere to put. And I've been, I had a Ukrainian friend, Anton, who was showing me around. And, and I said, you know, God, isn't it astonishing? It's just astonishing that he was able to get away with this. And, um, and Anton, who was a very laid back guy, said, what do you mean? It wasn't us who let him get away with this. It was you. And I was like, what do you mean? He goes, well, you know, the owner of this place, this isn't in Yanukovych's name. This is a British company. And I, and I looked it up and it was. Um, they showed not just his palace, but also his helicopter pad and his hunting lodge were owned by uh, shell companies registered on Harley Street, 29 Harley Street. And, and it looked, if you looked at it in the Ukrainian property register, like a completely legitimate investor had come in from West London, you know, bought up this patch of prime real estate. And it was just the Ukrainian president hiding behind a British shell company registered, what, you know, 200 yards from Oxford Street. Just extraordinary. It's just out there in plain sight. No one cares. No one does anything. It's no wonder the fraudsters are happy to use our services because, you know, no, no one in this country appears to care about it. Can, can I ask how much of an open secret is this? So obviously, this isn't a story a country wants to tell about itself. For about seven or eight years with a couple of friends, Roman Borisovich and Arthur Duhan, we've been running these things we call the kleptocracy tours. And we're lucky that Margaret often comes and, and, and speaks for us when we drive a bus around Western North London, pointing out mansions that belong to oligarchs. Um, you know, the fact that we've been doing that for the best part of a decade and nothing has changed. In fact, it's just we're just generally seen as a sort of amusing, eccentric British oddity that we run, you know, kleptocracy tours around London. And isn't that something to laugh about? Is it a demonstration of how in hiding in plain sight this problem is? Everyone knows that the oligarchs own large chunks of Belgravia and Knightsbridge and Highgate. Um, and, you know, we could go further afield into the home counties and they own plenty of that too. Everyone knows, you know, that they're you know, giving plenty of money to, to British politicians and plenty of money to British universities and British art galleries and so on, educating their children at British private schools. But no one's sufficiently interested to do anything about it. You know, giant money laundering scandals like, like the one in Danske Bank, which was exposed by a British whistleblower, Howard Wilkinson, um, hundreds of uh, billions moved through banks in the Baltic states, including Danske Bank, over you know, the decades um, after 2000. A lot of it ended up in property in this country. We've got no idea who owns it because it was hidden behind British corporate structures, in those cases, often Scottish limited partnerships. And when there were efforts by uh, the government, government in Scotland, the SNP, to do something about this, it ran aground in the Treasury because of concerns it would harm the competitiveness of the City of London. And I think that that's the, the core of it, really, that for a long time, politicians and officials have prioritised making life as easy as possible for private funds to move money around and so on, and not worrying about the damage that that does in places like Lebanon or places like Ukraine, places like Russia, and the way that it is empowering some of the worst people in the world and harming you know, millions of ordinary people. Oliver, something I wanted to ask you about is so much of this, you hear about money being channeled offshore. And for the book, you, you visited some of those places. You, you went to Gibraltar, you went to the British Virgin Islands. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about what you found there. The funny thing is, is that we, you often say that the money is offshore. The, mo the money isn't offshore. The money is here. The money is gone offshore in order to come back um, with a different flag on it. It's like the money can leave Russia, make a quick round trip via the Caribbean and return with a little BVI flag in it. And it doesn't look like it's Russian anymore. It has been a sort of kind of accidental development policy for the UK for decades that we've allowed the remaining bits of the British Empire to specialise in moving money for whoever in order to pay the basic bills that they do. So, so what does that look like when you go to those places then? The BVI is gorgeous, right? The British Virgin Islands, it's lovely. It's, you know, it's a, it's a lot of steep-backed 
dragon backed islands in the gorgeous Caribbean Sea, you know, covered in forests with villas looking down upon the limpid waters while oligarchs yachts tool by. Look, it's a nice place to go, right? I mean, I've done work trips to uh, old mining towns in Siberia, and I've done work trips to the Caribbean, and the Caribbean is definitely preferable. But the question, in a way, is that, you know, we often sort of blame the BVI or blame the Cayman Islands or blame Gibraltar or blame Bermuda, or blame, you know, the Turks and Caicos or Anguilla or, you know, the various British overseas territories. But this is a British issue, right? The, these places are British. You know, they have autonomy, but we have oversight over their affairs. And it isn't enough to essentially sort of slough off responsibility and say that, that we need to deal with this problem over there. Because, you know, we have essentially allowed the islands or in the case of Gibraltar, the peninsula, to develop these business models of being sort of conscience-free business centres. Um, and it's now our responsibility to unwind them and to point them in a different direction. What, what do you find when you go to somewhere like the BVI, Oliver? Yeah, how, how, visible, how visible is it? Oh, look, it's nothing. That, I mean, it's not. The thing is, it, you know, it's a lot more prosperous than it was before it started being a tax haven. It used to be a subsistence agriculture place. Now it's, you know, got lots of boxy American cars and supermarkets. And, but it's just lawyers, right? You've just got a few lawyers' offices. And if you go into them, the receptionist will, will look at you and, and greet you and say, sorry, we'd love to tell you things, but, you know, you're just going to have to um, go and speak to the government. And then you try and go and speak to the government and they don't tell you anything either. I mean, these are places that are built to keep secrets. That's what they're for. They're not all British these days. You know, America is way up there. America is doing very well in this too. But if you take the entire British archipelago as one, as we should do, really, because this is just a sort of artificial invention that we're separate. We are by far the most harmful tax haven in the world. Yeah, the city of London alone is harmful. If you add together all the other ones, we are by far the worst. It's nuts that we know all the names of these places and have that association, and, and that's just taken as normal. It's totally wild. The Cayman Islands was transformed by its governor into a tax haven to help Americans dodge taxes, and then you know, became one of the biggest financial centres in the world. It had nothing, really nothing, just a few thousand people and a lot of mosquitoes. And it's become, you know, a giant centre of the fund industry. And, you know, that has been a something overseen by successive British governments for decades and decades. You know, and it's really time that, you know, we recognise the tremendous harm that that's doing to the rest of the world. It isn't enough to think of the benefit that that does for us. One thing with the BVI, really, do you remember the hurricane in the BVI? And I remember the, seeing these images on our television of the damage that had been done to people there. And what you got from that was there isn't even a trickle-down effect of having these tax havens. So I think that, you know, all the lawyers, the international community that lives there that has a high quality of life, but they take their money out. And you saw, actually the uh, local population weren't benefiting in terms of the quality of their housing. The second thing to say is we've been trying to tackle our relationship with these tax havens. All we were trying to do was to introduce transparency. It was promised by David Cameron in 2015, 2016. It was never delivered. We got it through that they would have to have public registers of beneficial ownership, yes, uh, which would be really, at least you would again be able to follow the money to some extent. Because we pushed that legislation through as backbenchers, just at the time of the hurricane, we gave them until 2023 to implement that. This is 2023. We've no idea how far they've got along that road. But and this is really interesting. So every time you think you've made a, a step forward, you take a step back. There has recently been a terrible judgment in the European court where an action was taken 
by one of the big lawyers because the Europeans have introduced transparency, you know, public registers of beneficial ownership. An action was taken by a shell company in Luxembourg to the European Court of Justice to say that if you have transparency about beneficial ownership of companies, you are damaging individual privacy rights. And that was upheld. So at the moment, in Europe, no jurisdiction can force public registers of beneficial ownership to be published within their jurisdictions. So that's a sort of one step forward, one step back judgment. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And Oliver set out the effect on the countries from which these uh, oligarchs and others come from and them laundering the money. What is the effect? Just explain to our listeners, what's the effect in the UK itself? That's a big question, Ed. Nobody really knows how much of this is around. The most conservative of estimates suggest a recent figure from the University of Portsmouth is that £350 billion a year, billion pounds a year, is lost to the economy from fraud and money laundering. Gee whiz. Yeah, that, quite. So that is over 15% of GDP. Gee whiz. It's triple amount of the NHS budget. Just think of the enormity. I think what has begun to happen is dirty money has now become commonplace. And over time, we've seen it impact on our public services and our politics. Oliver, anything you want to add on impact? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important to bear in mind that though we always talk about kleptocrats, the techniques that they use to move their money, the techniques they use to evade detection are the same ones used by, you know, what you might call common or garden fraudsters. That's, you know, 40% of crime in the UK is now fraud. And, you know, that is misery for untold numbers of people who lose 50 grand, 60 grand, life-changing sums of money, but sums of money that the police have no interest in investigating because they don't have the resources to do so. The fact that we have chosen not to prosecute, not to investigate the movements of this huge quantities of money through the city of London, apparently for sort of strategic reasons to to encourage the growth of the city, has had this knock-on effect that it means that the police are unable, they don't have the resources to look into the fraud that afflicts ordinary people. 
And that is a real unspoken about tragedy, the sheer volume of people who are affected by fraud. And that is growing all the time. You've talked about how literally driving a bus around, pointing at mansions bought with dirty money isn't getting the attention. But it, it does seem that perhaps a turning point was the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Do you sense that that is some kind of turning point in the discussion? Yeah, it has been a real impetus for improvement. And I think, you know, we should give credit, I think, to to the government for that. There have been these two measures we've sought uh, very quickly. One, that transparency for offshore companies that own property in the UK, which were often used by oligarchs to hide their property. I mean, it's only a beginning. There's still trusts which aren't transparent, but offshore companies are now transparent or becoming transparent. And that's really good. And that was a response to the invasion. We have another piece of legislation going through Parliament at the moment to clean up companies' house, our, our own corporate registry, which is what well, provided a lot of the shell companies that laundered a lot of money out of uh, the former Soviet Union. So that's really good as well. And I was thinking about this in case you were going to ask about the, you know, the Jeffocracy question, because I'm a keen listener to the podcast, um, about, you know, what would be the single thing to, to improve the situation? The, the problem isn't really one of having, having bad laws. We've got plenty of good laws. The issue is that the laws aren't really enforced. The police agencies, the National Crime Agency, um, you know, the various different bodies are, you know, very small, very under-resourced. So, you know, what we really need is is to start taking this problem seriously in the long term, investing in the people we need to to, to investigate, to prosecute, and, and to do that with, you know, with the political cover over an extended period of time. So it isn't really a question of, of one thing, you know, what's the one thing we need to do. It's about totally changing the mindset and recognising that, as Margaret said, you know, dirty money will corrupt our own country in the end. And that's something we need to drive out. We're trying to turn around a massive tanker. The only way I can see it is I talk about taking action on four fronts. We need smart regulation. We need tough enforcement, which Oliver talked about. We need massive transparency. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. And then we need proper accountability. And if I just come back to the legislation, because we've got this bill before Parliament at the moment, I, I don't think we've got enough legislation. I mean, companies are is a joke. And it's full of, I can't remember how many thousand owners of company are children aged two and under, or, you know, Father Christmas as beneficial owners. We have to sort that out. And what the government is trying to do in the legislation is do that. But what they've suggested is just not tough enough and well enough crafted. It costs you 12 quid to set up a company in the UK. And you can do it in a couple of hours, 12 quid. You could easily raise the fee for setting up a company. You could ring fence that money so it could only be used for enforcement. And you could use that then to actually give some teeth to the laws, which I agree with Oliver is so important. And then the other thing, the bit of legislation that I think, and I think Oliver, you'd agree with this, that we really need. It's the oligarchs, the drug smugglers, the people smugglers, the bad actors, don't dream up these schemes themselves. The schemes are invented by the professionals, the enablers, so the bankers, the lawyers, the accountants, that lot. And they are never held to account. Introduce uh, a new criminal offence of failing to prevent money laundering or fraud. And you make that an offence against the accountants, the lawyers, the bankers. It will be a way in which you change their behaviour. And is there any prospect of that happening, Margaret? Well... 
Uh, I've worked really hard to try and build a cross-party coalition. People from the extreme right of the Tory party, right through to the extreme left of the Labour Party, understand the importance of this. But then translating that into action is something else. It's now in the House of Lords, and of course what is happening is that the government is watering down their promise. So we've got a battle, I'm engaged in at the moment, uh, of trying to ensure that actually they keep to what they promised us in the Commons. I can't help thinking as I listen to both of you and making this incredibly compelling case, but then basically saying that even after Russia, Ukraine, it's been an absolute fight to get the kind of necessary legislation on the books. There must be some countervailing forces within government that are pushing it in the other direction. What are those countervailing forces and arguments that are saying to government not too fast? Where are they coming from? Well, I think there's two points. One of them is we need to recognise that the police resourcing is really bad. Um, you know, the, the resourcing in the National Crime Agency, just as an example of this, you know, after uh, February last year, the full-scale invasion, after the Boris Johnson announced the creation of the countering kleptocracy cell, which I think came as a bit of a surprise to people in the National Crime Agency who had no idea it was coming. Um, I was invited into the NCA to tell them about oligarchs, you know, and I was very, very happy to do so. I'll tell anyone about oligarchs. I wang on about this for hours. But it was indicative of, of the lack of preparation and the lack of resourcing in the agency that they were asking a journalist to help them when when it should go in the other direction. That's maybe got to be your job in the Jeffocracy, Oliver. <laughs> the chief enforcer. Chief teller of stories about oligarchs. Chief anti-corruption yeah. enforcer. The second tell, and it's what I tell in Butler to the World, is after the uh, a big money laundering scandal was exposed in Moldova with the misuse of Scottish limited partnerships, um, there was a, a concentrated effort led by um, uh, Roger Mullen, then the Treasury spokesman for the Scottish National Party at Westminster, to try and force through reform of this. And he did very well. There was this subsequent pushback from the Treasury after Brexit. Mm. Uh, we cannot put more regulations in the way of our financial services industry. The idea being that somehow regulations are always bad. But from my perspective, it seems crazy not to recognise that if you make, as Margaret said, creating shell companies very cheap, a time comes when they become more bad than good. If you have more fraud, that is bad for legitimate business. There is a curve. So the argument I keep making is to say, as Margaret said, you know, we can measure the cost of fraud to the UK in tens of billions of pounds. You know, we can measure the cost of the amount of money laundered through the City of London in hundreds of billions of pounds every year. If you think of that in terms of a cost on business, it's like having another NHS or like having another defence budget. It's, it's so much money. Um, and if we could stop that money being taken by fraudsters, it would it would free up our economy in a way that almost no other measure could do. It's a frustrating case to have to make again and again. And Margaret, tell us about the conversations you have with government ministers and others in, in, in private and in public. W what do you still come up against? I think people are just frightened because of the impact of Brexit on the economy. They're, they're absolutely petrified of doing anything else that might, in the short term, in their view, be detrimental to the financial services sector and therefore its contribution to the economy. That's partly it. I think it's partly also the influence of all those players, the accountants, the lawyers. They all have such access. And then I think the other thing that I have felt in my recent discussion with ministers is I actually think that after a decade of austerity in the civil service, from the time that we were in government, you look at the civil service now and it's really been hollowed out. There are a lot of very, very bright 22-year-olds in there 
There are some 60-year-olds who've sort of been there forever. But that middle range of really important civil servants aren't there. They haven't got the experience or the expertise to really understand what needs to be done. And presumably the argument that some people in Britain would make, I'm not saying I agree with this, would be, oh, well, look, if we're not doing this, somebody else is going to. Yes. It's always been the argument. Yeah, I mean, but but what I would reply in return, people say, well, if we don't do it, somebody else will, so we may as well do it. My reply is no one else can do for oligarchs what we can do. Britain, in terms of the spectrum of services available, we educate their children, we you know, sell them property, we sell them fine art, we captain their super yachts, we provide you know, flags to hang on the back of their super yachts, we do everything. Private planes. Private everything. You know, it, you know, the healthcare on Harley Street, it's all here. It's extraordinary. So, yes, if, if we didn't do it, somebody else theoretically could. But there isn't anyone else who actually could. Just to finish, I'm listening to this and I feel enraged by it. And I'm sure listeners will be feeling the same way. Is there anything, is there any way in which people can get involved, any campaigning around this? Or, or is it the work of government? You know what is interesting? I mean, just look at my social media. If I put something in my social media about any of this area, it's very difficult to get a big take up on it. If I put anything on my social media, which is gossip about a politician, I might very well quickly run into the thousands. Why do you think that is? Well, because in a way, when I started on this journey, and I started in relation to tax, you know, that was my first. It's so technical. And the professionals hide behind their language, you know, sort of nerdy bit of it, to actually stop a debate. So we all own this stuff. You know, we all pay tax. We should all care about what it does to us. So what I've always tried to do, and Oliver does brilliantly, is simplified in a way that it really impacts on your life. You know, we managed with tax when we sort of you know, got Google and Starbucks and Amazon to come and give evidence. We managed to take it from the, you know, closed rooms of where the professionals discussed it into the pubs and the dinner tables. And we've got to try and do the same with corruption. I think Oliver's sort of kleptocratic tours showing, just showing the buildings that are owned, the homes that are owned. That's the start. If we can get more of that and just more around fraud, we might manage it. Everybody hates it. But getting it absolutely focused in people's minds is hard. A politician once told me that the problem with financial crime is that it's everyone's fourth priority. Yeah. <laughs> and just the, the previous three are all different. And, and that is a real, real challenge, obviously, in, you know, cutting through the fact that everyone thinks this is accountancy and boring. And, and so people recognise that this is a real thing with real victims and, and a real, real problem. The Ukraine crisis has focused people's minds in a way that's never happened before. So, you know, what can people do? Um, There are good organisations that work in this area, Transparency International, Global Witness, Spotlight on Corruption and others. You know, if you've got a spare five quid at the end of the month, and God knows not many people do at the moment, but if anyone does, then, you know, maybe maybe think about helping them out. So they can do a little bit of countervailing lobbying. You know, as Margaret said, you know, the lawyers, the accountants and so on, they're all there. They're the people who have the lobbyists there on the, on, on the boards of departments and so on. If you can get a Transparency International staffer in there too, then there will be a, a countervailing voice who will speak up for the victims of financial crime and the victims of kleptocracy. And that's what we need. Um, so perhaps think about that. But I appreciate it's a, it's a tough ask at the moment. But if anyone can, that would be great. 
Well, look, uh, Oliver Blow and Margaret Hodge, you are definitely fighting the good fight. I'm sure all of our listeners will feel that, having listened to both of you. It's been a fascinating conversation. I have a job title for Oliver in the Jeffocracy, by the way. Yeah, go on. It's, it's uh, Kleptocrat Find a General, oh. I think. I also want to say how grateful I am for, for Oliver for, for using the phrase limpid waters on this podcast. I think it's, uh, it's, it's some of the nicest use of language we've, we've had for a long time. Well, Oliver Below and Margaret Rogers, it's been fantastic to talk to you. You've been incredibly enlightening. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me on. Thank you. Well, that was a fascinating conversation, I must say. I didn't quite realise the scale of how much we stand out on this. I think that's kind of the point of the whole thing. We've all got some kind of awareness of it. And I I think that is most people turn a blind eye. I think it's that by design, so impenetrable that we can't really begin to unravel it. But then you hear the size of the numbers involved. I rarely see your face change at the mention of this number because you're used to what budgets look like and what sounds like a big number to me is is chicken feed to you in terms of national spending but this is the size of the nhs budget and just that we we all know these british overseas territories like gibraltar or the british virgin islands jersey jersey we all know these names and have that association that money has bounced through them and we just think that's oh that's just the way it is that nothing happens I mean, it sounds like there is legal change underway, triggered by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but it sounds like it doesn't quite go as far as we'd want, or at least Margaret would want. And there's also massive questions about whether it's going to be enforced. And, And also, I think what's also striking is this is quite embedded now. It's not like let's just change the, this one law and then it'll be all be okay. It's quite a sort of embedded cultural thing that's happening here. But as, as Margaret and and Oliver both said, that's not sustainable, isn't it? You you can't sustain an economy that is dependent on no. dirty money. Yeah. It's anyway. It's really really important. And the paperback of Oliver's book Butler to the World is out now. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, let us know what you think. As discussed, it's not a topic, surprisingly, given how big this is economically. It's it's not a topic that gets that much light shone on it, really. So if you've got thoughts on what you've heard, we'd love to hear from you. Or thoughts on any of our episodes, or indeed episodes that we haven't done yet that you would like to hear, uh, you can email us through the website, cheerfulpodcast.com. Or praise. You say that every time. We're very needy people, but we've got to keep it just under the surface. Rate and review us on your... Lots of podcasts say that. They do, although I'm, I'm never sure of the effectiveness of it at this point. Every now and again, my phone, I'll get a notification saying rate facebook or rate google and i think how many people are going to the app store and thinking i've heard of this google oh it's only got 4.2 stars okay i know but we're not we're not a giant monolithic company we're we're sort of mum and pop pop and pop yeah pop and lock lock and pop yeah you're right then then do rate and review us but only, only something nice please yeah the first email comes from emma doyle on the subject of bookshops and emma says hi ed and jeff i was feeling very cheerful when i saw the title of today's episode because i love books and especially love bookshops particularly as i now have an amazing new feminist stroke queer bookshop down the road from me so i was feeling even happier when I found out that the absolutely wonderful owners of that bookshop, Rosie and Sarah, were on the podcast. 
I wanted to reiterate how important their shop already has become for me and people I know with their social events and book clubs providing much needed opportunities for people to meet in an inclusive and welcoming space. Is that lovely to hear? Yeah. Uh, other honourable bookshop mentions include their Sheffield neighbour, La Biblioteca, and across in Leeds, The Bookish Type, another fantastic queer space championing a great selection of authors, zine makers and artists. Uh, I just wanted to share my excitement to hear this week's podcast. Isn't that lovely? Oh, great email. This one uh, comes from Gabrielle, who is the cold water graph maker, the prolific letter writer and live show attendee, as she puts it. And the subject is regarding the Bernie Sanders episode and being two degrees of separation from him. Hi, Ed and Jeff. Loved the Bernie Sanders episode. I was experiencing a sense of deja vu when listening because he reminded me of my grandfather. And the resemblance isn't a coincidence. They were on the track team together at James Madison High School in Brooklyn sometime in the late 1950s. Wow. Amazing. The attached picture contains both of them. Their lives after high school were sort of parallel as they both left Brooklyn and went north. Bernie went to Vermont and my grandfather to upstate New York. They were both ahead of their time. It's 40 to 50 years on. Brooklynites are moving into both locations. <laughs> they have increasingly similar mannerisms, which I picked up on listening. James Madison High School is clearly a bit of a political incubator because both Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Chuck Schumer, who is the um, Senate majority leader, also attended within a few years of Bernie. So that's my two degrees of separation from Bernie. Wow. Um, Amazing. She also adds, on Ed's new project of potato latkes, that's potato pancakes, up the stakes by booking in a Hanukkah RTBC special 2023 second week of December, which gives eight months to learn and serve them at a gathering of past guests and friends of the pod. Uh, I'm not sure I want to accept the challenge because accept I'm... Accept it, Ed. Come on. Don't I'm, be, come on. I'm, I'm worried about my... The, I've sort of told you in the past, haven't I, that the latka making ruined my parents-in-law's kitchen. It really was chaos. And I'm wondering if we should put the photograph up on social media that Gabrielle attached and we could do like a Where's Wally, but with Bernie Sanders. Good idea. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Uh, well, we're in the outro, ho, ho. Ho, ho, ho. Well, I have a Mutapaneer update. Aha, because you, you made your Indian cheese and peas a little while ago. Yes. And it, from from memory, it was a, it was neither a hit nor a miss. Yes, I probably went from a C to a C plus, I would say. Well, in my view, I went from a C to a A minus or a B plus, but, but not in the view of the other member of my household who ate the thing, because the reaction was, I said, oh... I think this is much nicer than last time. And the reaction was, well, that's funny, though, because when my friend Kate made it, it had this lovely sauce, (laughs) which was exactly the same reaction as the previous time. You know how on Bake Off, everybody is competing to to get the Hollywood handshake, which is the sign of approval from poor Hollywood. What would the equivalent be with your wife, Justine? I think her not using the words edible. Either in or not in edible. Yes, you need to transcend that. No, but some of them have had success. And I think there is, to be fair to her, there is gratitude for me having made the effort. Um, it's just, I think I think basically I've got a sort of, I've got a kind of bar problem. It's like a, her friend Kate made such a nice version of this that I can't really, I think if she hadn't eaten Kate's version, it would have been okay. Mm. 
But do you know what I mean? I'm sort of struggling to meet the bar. I'm going to get in touch with Kate and find out what the secret is. That's so interesting because you say that and my instinct straight away was, how can we discredit Kate? <laughs> Could we brief against her? No, I think I think not. I'd like to thank our guests, Oliver Bullo and Dame Margaret Hodge. Ain't nothing like a dame. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer is our content producer, supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made the eye dance. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been... Reasons to be Cheerful. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.